we've just been told in our reading that the Bible is the sword of the Spirit. Uh, isn't it good to have a great weapon to wield? Uh, let's pray that uh, God will cut us to the hearts. Father, pray please that as we get into your word, which is the sword of the Spirit, that you will ready us for battle. Uh, we thank you for uh, the preparation you give us, the army you give us. We pray as we learn about it that we will be dressed ready for whatever comes. Amen. Well, are you properly armed for battle? Uh, you didn't look like you walked in in uh, battle armour, but uh, maybe you did. Uh, it might seem a strange question to be asked on a Sunday morning in church, uh, particularly when there's been daylight savings and, you know, we'll get another few people coming to breakfast uh, after the service when they turn up for church. Uh, but are you properly dressed for the battle? I ask that because the reality, like it or not, is that while we are on this earth, Christians are in a war zone. It's not a conventional war with bombs and guns. It's not a war on terror where we've got to watch out for IEDs in the street that might maim us physically. No, we're engaged in a spiritual war. Uh, perhaps you came today acutely aware of the battle already and you're feeling battered and bruised. Maybe you're even feeling defeated. Well, take heart. There is armour for the fight that is impregnable and you cannot lose if you're wearing it. Uh, perhaps you came today uh, feeling a bit like this guy, uh, Conan the Barbarian, powerful. You're ready to take on any foe. And I say, well, that's great, but be careful because running into battle naked is a recipe for disaster. And it's not our strength that's going to win this fight. Or perhaps you came today oblivious you have been asleep while the battle has been raging around you. Well, it's time to wake up, O oh sleeper, as we heard in the passage a couple of weeks ago. Put on your battle dress and take your stand. And you can tell from verses 10 and 11 in our reading in Ephesians chapter 6 that that's the point. See it there? Ephesians 6 verse 10. Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the schemes of the devil. There is a war on. And while we're going to see how ferocious that fighting might be, the good news is if we aren't properly, then we cannot lose because this is God's armour and we fight with his strength. We might feel puny, like we're in a tug of war against a team of weightlifters. But we've got the Hulk as the anchor man, and so he's not going anywhere. We've, we've got this one. Well, let's get into it. There's a war on, so stand firm. You, you can see that Paul wants his readers to stand ready for battle. Four times he says it in just the four verses. Verse 11, put on the armour of God so that you can stand. Verse 13, for this reason, take up the full armour of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand. Verse 14, stand therefore. But if we're going to take our stand, then surely we've got to know what the war is that we're in. Who's the enemy? Where's the front line? What kind of tactics will the enemy use? So first thing says, know your enemy. Verse 11, put on the full armour of God so you can take your stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, 
against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. Now, some Christians, particularly in the West since the 1800s, have become very shy about the supernatural and they just try and explain it all away that, you know, Paul's just using flowery language to describe the real battle that we face against very human issues of injustice and inequality and so we've got to take up the battle for social justice. But, but we can't just de-supernaturalise it like that. I mean, Paul explicitly rules that out, doesn't he? Our battle is not against flesh and blood. We're not fighting people. We're not against other people. It's, it's the battle we're in is not primarily against the government and their legislation or on religious freedom or conversion therapy or whatever's coming up next. Uh, they might be his pawns, but they are not the real enemy. It's not a war against atheists who despise anyone who believes in God. It's not a, a war against people from other cultures or religions or against LGBT people. They are all victims of the real enemy. He, they've been taken captive by him, we saw in chapter 2. Who is the enemy? The devil and his vast army of spiritual generals. We are in a spiritual battle fighting against unseen invisible but nonetheless real and utterly ruthless forces of evil they exist they are there and they stand against us in charge of them is satan himself the devil the bible doesn't tell us where he's from or why he's there although lots of christians like to speculate on that but it does tell us a great deal about him he's called various things he's called the prince of this world He's the prince of demons. He's the ruler of the kingdom of air from chapter 2 we saw a few weeks ago. 52 times in the Bible he's given the name Satan. Satan means accuser. He accuses people. Remember in the book of Job, Satan comes to God to accuse Job of only being a fair weather believer. He only loves you, God, because you're so nice to him. You've given him all this stuff. That's why he, he's yours. And you might have experienced some of his accusations. You might have experienced them personally in your head. You're no good. You call yourself a real Christian. Look at you. 35 times he's referred to as the devil, which means slanderer. He slanders God. He slanders us. He's called the serpent, the great dragon, the roaring lion, the evil one. He's called Abaddon and Apollyon, which, which both mean destroyer. He is called tempter, accuser, perverter, murderer, and liar. And in fact, the chief weapon in his arsenal is his lies. That's how he kills people, twisting the truth, perverting the facts, questioning, undermining. Uh, Jesus talks about him in uh, John chapter 8, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. But like all good liars, he doesn't come across as evil and nasty. I mean, if someone comes and just bold-faced lies to you, you just 
suspicion, don't you? The devil's not like in the cartoons. He's not wearing red lycra so we can spot him and uh, carrying his big pitchfork. Uh, Not only would he look stupid, um, but we'd spot him a mile away. No, how does he appear when he comes to lie? Well, 2 Corinthians 11 uh, tells us that he's always disguised as an angel of light. Uh, And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. Is it not surprising that his servants uh, masquerade as servants of righteousness? It makes him hard to spot. makes them hard to spot. It makes them very dangerous. The devil will appear in the softest of guises, speaking words which make him sound kind and that he's on your side. He charmed Eve with lovely promises, didn't he, that sounded so good. And what is the devil's aim? What is he trying to do? Well, he and his minions are making war against God every way they can. And one of their chief enterprises is to stalk Christians. In 1 Peter 5, we read this, Your enemy, the devil prowls around like a roaring liar seeking whom he may devour. Satan's chief pleasure is taking down Christians. He's looking to trip us up, to render us useless, joyless, fruitless, and if he could, turn us from Christ altogether. He's already blinded the rest of the world, so we're his real targets. He's already got them. But there's one more thing you need to know about the devil. He's a defeated enemy. He may still be fighting, thrashing around and looking to do real damage, but he's in his death throes because he and his minions have been decisively defeated already by Jesus. God is far stronger and far more powerful than him. There are not two gods, one good, one bad, duking it out and who's going to win, no. There's one God and there's one pretender and he's already lost. Back in chapter 1, Paul prayed for us as we read this letter that we might know the immeasurable greatness of God's power and his mighty strength. He went on to describe what that was in verse 20 of chapter 1. You might want to flip back there. He exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at the right hand in the heavens far above, get this, every ruler, authority, power and dominion and every title given, not only in this age but also in the one to come. The very same minions of Satan who wage war against us now in chapter 6 are already defeated that Jesus reigns over them from chapter 1. I imagine that the devil and his hordes were high-fiving each other and back-slapping each other and planning a great feast when they tempted Judas by greed to betray Jesus. We've got him now. Little could they have known that the cross was in fact the decisive victory for the Lord Jesus because it was there that our debt was paid before God, our sins washed clean. So Satan the accuser has no more accusation he can bring against us. And when Jesus came out of the grave, they knew they were done. But while they know their end is coming, in the meantime, Satan and his hordes are going to go down fighting and do as much damage as they can. Well, if that's the enemy, 
where is the front line of the battle? Where are you going to go and wage this war? Where is the fighting going to be most ferocious? Well, the front line of the battle is up here. It's in our minds. I don't mean in our mental capacity and I don't mean in our imagination, but in our understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done for us and, and what, what life is like. It makes sense, doesn't it, that, that if the devil's main weapon is his words, his accusations, his slander, his lies, by which he twists and perverts the truth, then the real battle is a battle for the mind. That's why Paul's banged on and on through the letter. I don't know if you've noticed it. I've pointed out a couple of times. I've counted 16 times already. He's talked about the importance of knowing, of the mind, of thinking. Uh, here's just a few that we've seen. Uh, uh, one of the great blessings of God in chapter 1, verse 9, is that God has revealed to us his plan uh, so that we can know Jesus is going to win. Paul prays in Ephesians 1, 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Right? In Ephesians 4, 13, the point of church is that we all use our gifts so that we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son growing into maturity. 4 verse 17, you ought to no longer walk as Gentiles do in the futility of their thoughts. They are darkened in understanding, excluded from the life of God because of their ignorance that's in them and the hardness of their hearts. That, that is, they've been deceived by the devil. It's why in 4.23, the critical step between putting off the old self and putting on the new you is that you be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And it's why we saw over the last couple of weeks that as we learn to, we've got to learn to walk as wise, not as unwise, and walk in God's light. The mind is the front line of the battle. And I raise it because it's very easy to become distracted from the front line and to go chasing demons in all the wrong sorts of places. In the 1980s and 90s, there was a huge surge of interest in spiritual warfare. Maybe it was on the back of movies like The Exorcist and Omen in the, in the 70s. I don't know if they were crowd favourites here. Uh, <laughs> uh, but all sorts of books came out. Frank Peretti's Piercing the Darkness that someone gave me as a young Christian to know about the spiritual war that was on. There was angels sitting around, but they're helpless until you start praying, and you've got to, you've got to beef up the angels as if they need my help. But anyway, they, um, the, there's all sorts of ministries sprung up, and some are still around and still local, and they focused on tracking down demons, and the demons were everywhere. A friend of mine, as a young Christian, was told he needed the demon of smoking cast out of him. Well, stop smoking by all means, right? It's bad for your health, but it's not because you've got a demon in you. Um, uh, uh, there were two or three people at the church I'd become a Christian through. I was only a young Christian who thought we needed to do start doing exorcisms on some of the youth group members. <laughs> well, Julie might agree with that. She's nodding up the back. Some of the score... <laughs> <laughs> I was given a book to read on territorial spirits, suggesting that there's particular demons who have control over particular shops, uh, particular suburbs, and particular cities. 
Uh, Christians became anxious when they were told that they might have a demon in them because their great-great-great-grandfather was a Freemason, which meant somehow Satan had some special hold over a particular area of life or another. And so Christians were chasing their tails, checking family trees, uh, looking for Freemasons or, or trying to sense the, the presence of evil in the India fox shops around. I think that was just the smell of incense, <laughs> not the demons. But it was all just a distraction. It's, it's, it's the devil throwing a rock over there, so we're looking in the wrong direction and we're not ready to stand in formation where the action is really at. But that's just like him, isn't it? It's, it's all part of his tactics. What are his tactics? What's his modus operandi? Lies. And so he spreads rumours and disinformation intended to distract, disorient, and ultimately cause doubt and despair. Our society has been sucked in by the same old lies the devil has always told. That sin isn't sin, that God isn't God, that God is against you being truly fulfilled and that you can run your life your way with no consequence. He lies. These lies might be in the form of flattery, they might be slander, they might be temptation, but they're always there to destabilise you, disorient you and stop you walking worthy of the gospel of our Lord Jesus. That's how he devours believers. The front line of the battle is really up here in our understanding of God and then it moves down here in our delight of God and all of us as we, as we, in our being as we determine to submit ourselves to God as we grasp all that God has done in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the war we are in. Stand firm. Well, how are we going to do that? Well, we do it by putting on the armaments that God has provided. His armour is impregnable. I don't know if you remember school history. Aaron presumably remembers it very well. Uh, uh, doing school projects on the Romans. Maybe you had to build a catapult or something, but uh, maybe you've seen Spartacus or Gladiator. Uh, maybe you made cardboard versions of this armour in Sunday school if you had the pleasure. I became a Christian as an adult, so I missed out on that kind of fun. Um, that's why I'm still doing it today. <laughs> uh, Roman troops were garrisoned all over Europe. They'd be there in Ephesus, just in the street. And certainly for Paul, riding from prison, he was surrounded by guards who were Roman soldiers. But it's not just Roman soldiers that Paul had in mind. Because whose armour is he writing about? Well, he says it's the armour of God. It's not just the armour that God gives. Way back in the Old Testament, about 700 years before Paul wrote this, the prophet Isaiah, we just read, spoke about the day when God would come. And it's kind of unclear if it's God or his Messiah is kind of through desire. It's, it's both and one, send his Messiah to save his people and bring justice and in Isaiah 11, when he comes, righteousness shall be his belt uh, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Uh, we also find out that the word of his mouth is his weapon in Isaiah 11. 
In Isaiah 52, uh, 52, his feet are wearing the shoes of a herald who brings good news. How beautiful are his feet, the one who brings the gospel. In Isaiah 59, Kathy read for us, he stands with salvation as his helmet, righteousness as his breastplate, and just judgment as his clothing, zeal as his cloak. So Paul's referencing things from the Old Testament. He's referencing the armour that God wears and that's already proven to be impregnable, even victorious through Jesus' death and resurrection. And so as we start to dive into what this armour actually is, as we go through it, literally every part of the armour of God is tied to the gospel. That is, Jesus Christ is Lord. Uh, Let's have a look at the pieces of it. Verse 14. Stand therefore with truth like a belt around your waist, righteousness like armour on your chest, and your feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. In every situation, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Well, the first piece of armour is the belt. Uh, Why would a soldier start dressing for war with a belt? That seems a funny place to start. Uh, Well, Roman tunics, you might know from the movies, uh, hung well down mid-calf. Mid-calf, that's where your toga went, that's what gentlemen wore. But you couldn't run into battle in a full-length skirt, could you? (laughs) Right? The first thing you did as a soldier was tuck up your tunic so you had a mini skirt instead. <laughs> um, the old expression is girding up your loins, <laughs> hoiking up your pants, maybe you'd call it today. Um, the, what's the first thing you do if you're going into spiritual battle? You gird your loins. With what? With the truth, the gospel truth the truth of the Messiah that he is girded with as the belt in Isaiah 11. The truth that Jesus has already won, that he's for you, that he's with you. Put on truth like a belt around your waist. Then there's the breastplate of righteousness. He's not talking about our own righteousness. That'd be pretty weak armour. There'd be lots of cracks there to for the devil to stab through, wouldn't there? But God's righteousness, the righteousness that comes to us by the declaration of God that we are right before him. God sees you as perfect if you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. God's giving you his righteousness. Why is that like chest armour in this fight? Well, think of Satan's tactics. He comes at you to accuse you with lies You're no good, you're hopeless, look what you did yesterday, you're a loser, why would God want you? You say you're a Christian. But the blessed parade of righteousness, with that on, you're absolutely secure because God has forgiven you. Bink! It just flicks off. That's followed by the shoes. Not quite like the Australian army boots of today, but... Roman legionaries wore studded sandals for long-distance marching. They're a bit like footy boots. 
Um, you want the right kind of boots if you're going to go over rough terrain. And in battle, you certainly don't want to slip over, particularly at an inopportune moment. Your life and the life of the guy next to you both depend on it. And so what's the kind of studded boots God wears and which he gives us to put on for this spiritual battle? He says the long-distance marching sandals, <laughs> boots of the gospel of peace, the message that reconciliation is possible with God. Trusting the gospel of peace and reconciliation will mean we won't be tripped up by Satan's false version of the gospel, the perversions that are out there. But there are also shoes that we wear for the spread of the gospel amongst our family and friends, our colleagues, our neighbours, wherever we happen to find ourselves through the week as we call more and more people out of the darkness, out of their blindness, to rally with us to the Lord Jesus. Then there's the shield. Uh, the Romans had a variety of shields. Paul's specifically referring here, there's a word for it, the, the full-length shield they used to form the turtle formation. One of those uh, which would stop arrows coming in from the front, from the sides, or down from on top. What's the legionary sh legionnaire shield that God wears which he gives us? Well, it's the shield of faith which will extinguish all the arrows of the evil one. What does he mean by that? What's the shield of faith? It's not wishful thinking kind of faith that I just believe stuff's going to happen. It's, it's, not, um, it's not believing whatever you like. It's not believing in yourself. It's the shield of the faith. It's, it's the gospel again. The faith once and for all, for all delivered to the saints. If only we will take it up, none of Satan's arrows could strike home. Next is the, the helmet, and it's the helmet of salvation. When we came to Christ, we were saved. We talk about it in those terms. But I think he's talking about the hope that we have for the future. That's also described as the day we'll be saved, when we, when we finally come home. That we are to dwell on the future and remember that salvation is, that part of salvation is yet to come. The sure hope that we have through the cross that comes from the gospel. He's secured for you a glorious inheritance in his new creation. God has promised there'll be no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So slander us all he like. Accuse us of all kinds of evil. Accuse us that we are haters of people when we stand for Jesus and his ways. But our head's protected when we're wearing this helmet. Well, the helmet of salvation. And then finally, there's the sword, which is the only offensive weapon that we're given. It's the sword of truth, the sword of the word. The word which speaks of Satan's demise and so terrifies the powers and authorities and the spiritual forces of evil. We have in our hands, in the scriptures, the, the very weapon of God the perfect weapon both to use defensively and offensively. Uh, we use it defensively like Jesus did when he quoted scripture and Satan fled from him. Resist the devil, he'll flee from you, James says. How do you resist the devil? You, you remember what God says. Offensively, we, we use it because people are born again by the word of God. That's the only way they're born again. 
They are sanctified by the word. They are comforted by the word. They are instructed by the use of the word. But the Bible is only useful or as useful as a sword as you know the contents of it. (laughs) So that you can know what God's answers are to the lies, to temptation. But when you do know it, even just a little bit, you can parry Satan's daggers and arrows and you can use its immense power to save and to sanctify. This is the armour of God which is impregnable and which will see us through the battle safely to the other side if we wear it. So put it on. Get dressed for battle. But how do I do that? Well, well, we've already been given the answer all the way through the letter. Keep coming back to the gospel. Remember the blessings that God has given us through the gospel. Adoption, redemption, election, revelation the, of God's ultimate plan for Jesus' victory, the spirit within. Keep reflecting on those things and, and praising God for them. Keep remembering them to God. <laughs> He's told us that we're to go on hearing the teaching of the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers, which which builds us up and equips us for works of ministry. He's told us that we are to speak to one another, the truth in love. We're to even sing to each other the great truths of God in psalms, hymns and spiritual songs to remind each other. And so surely then putting on this armour is a matter of immersing ourselves in the truth by ourselves with each other in our conversations in our church life together over tea and toast later wherever we might come across each other our minds are the front line of the battle he's not talking about just having a cold and clinical knowledge of the bible being able to be the fastest bible flicker and know the the obscure references like job 3 2 anyone know job 3 2 he said that's it anyway you think jesus wept was short that's even shorter but anyway that's a, uh, it, it's not you know learn something so you can win the trivia quiz right it's about immersing yourself in the wonderful truth of god so you can be filled with certainty certainty that you know god's mind certainty that you stand right with him because of his promises and that as you know him and his ways you can walk in them and that as you go on you can be filled with thankfulness joy and confidence and it's in cherishing the deepening knowledge of god's wonderful gospel and word which will help us know the lies when they come and see through satan's schemes and be able to cut them to shreds i've heard uh so don't take this as gospel truth that they train bank tellers and the fraud squad in the u.s to be able to spot counterfeit bills do you know how they do that they don't they don't show them all the counterfeits that have ever been collected so far they're they're useless because the next counterfeit will be better right what they do is send them for a whole week to the mint to have them handle the real thing just just the whole week spend their touch money smell it look at it know it intimately smell the way it feels the way it bends all the tiny details And the more you know the real thing, the more you can spot a fake a mile off. Well, let me wrap up by coming back to verse 10. Finally, 
Be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast power. Put on the armour of God so you can stand against the schemes of the devil. Father, thank you for warning us that we have a ferocious enemy who hates us and you warn us of his tactics, what he's like and that he'll even appear as an angel of light. But thank you he is defeated already by the cross and thank you that you give us armour that is impregnable and so please help us to put it on. Be armed for the fight, knowing your truth through and through. Wherever we are at now, help us to learn more and more about you, to soak ourselves uh, and to delight in what you say, that we might be ready for whatever comes at us, whatever temptation, slander, accusation, perversion. Help us to be ready so we can stand firm and keep fighting, not just for ourselves, but fighting with each other for each other to keep going and also that we might uh, share that word with others that are in blindness and darkness and help them come to receive the truth new life and the joy that comes with it in the lord jesus christ amen